Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, a chaplain, and he has a key interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your guest host, Eric Oltrop, and today, Aaron, I think I'll get you to introduce today's topic. Right on. Well, it's so-called Pride Month. It's June the 1st, so I figure we'd tackle the third of the seven deadly sins. We've already covered the seven deadly sins. Two of the seven deadly sins, the sin of sloth and lust, and today I want to examine the sin of pride. Now, apparently, in Canada, given the fact that we're now in Pride Month, it is now a virtue. Apparently, we're supposed to be proud of sexual immorality. Apparently, it's hateful to quote from biblical law pertaining to chastity and God's redemptive creational plan for sexuality. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But more broadly, I think we can all admit that sin is a problem for everyone, Mm -hmm. and it's something that we need to both expose and expel from our lives. I can appreciate what uh, C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I think that's true. Um, Pride is, is a problem that every human being needs to conquer in their lives, and there's a a way of doing that. When we have it in ourselves, by the way, um, it it tends to be true that we despise it more than others, because at its root, pride has a very competitive aspect to Mm -hmm. it. So we don't like to see others puff themselves up, but we often overlook it in our own lives. So I, I don't want this episode to just be about Pride Month in terms of the public incitation to commit non-creational sexual acts, (laughs) but I I, I do want it to be an opportunity for us to assess pride in our own lives. And it is, in a sense, a seminal sin, like an original sin. Lewis uses this very interesting language. He says that it's it's through pride that the devil became the devil Mm -hmm. because he sought to usurp the authority of God. And so it's one of those, before anybody stole anything, (laughs) before anybody coveted another person's wife, before anybody blasphemed the name, there was pride. Mm -hmm. And so it is a very seminal sin, and it does infect and affect all of us. Right. Okay, great. So if we think broadly about what we're taught through social media influencers Uh, education, secular therapists, we often hear language like, you should be proud of yourself, you should love yourself, you should believe in yourself. And and people with insecurities can can often eat this stuff up quite quite easily. So what are some of the converging factors that have created such a self-absorbed, prideful culture? Well, you are right. Self-love or self-absorption is what it really is, is a pretty prominent theme in culture. We do hear therapists encouraging people. They analyze someone's deficits and they say, you need, you need to love yourself more. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in the athletic realm, I think the athletic realm is especially guilty of this, whether it's um, 
producers of running shoes or athletic gear or um, even gyms, you know, we're in favor of body care and body stewardship, but there can be this emphasis on doing it for yourself, doing right. it. All. What we're saying essentially, we all know it is do it so that get fit so other people can look at you mm-hmm. and you can get attention. So there's this, there is a huge focus on self-love. Forbes published an article earlier this year on this topic, and, and I thought it was interesting that among other things, they, they, they're talking in that article about in order to love yourself better, there's two things that stood out. You need to practice self-forgiveness. And the second thing that jumped out at me is you need to learn to give yourself a compliment. <laughs> now, <laughs> historically, when we've thought of forgiveness, we've always assumed there needs to be two parties involved in that. Yeah, There's the offended and the offender, and the offended receives a request for forgiveness Mm -hmm. from the offender and the relationship is reconciled. Forgiveness involves two parties. There's someone that's been offended by you, but we're such a self-absorbed society that apparently now in order to love yourself, you need to forgive yourself. It's, It's very dangerous actually. It's almost like you're putting yourself up, we could apply this to the gospel, as your own redeemer. Rather than looking yeah. beyond yourself for forgiveness, you look within and you choose to self-redeem. You choose to self-redeem. And then offering yourself a compliment, again, normally you would assume there's a recipient and a giver of the compliment. Mm-hmm. Hey, Eric, I appreciate this about you, or you did a great job in this area. You're receiving the compliment from me. You're the recipient. But now we're supposed to pat ourselves on the back and compliment ourselves. Hey, Aaron, you did a really good job <laughs> with that sermon, man. I loved it. <laughs> Who am I talking to? Uh, myself. It's a very abso- self-absorbed culture. The Bible does call us to forgive others, and it also calls us to find our identity. This is really critical, to find our identity in the righteousness of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the virtues of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ applied to us by his grace. Not, oh, I did a really good job. I I accomplished my goal. I lost 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. I aced the exam. I came first at the track meet. Not that self-interested type of self-love, but a love that is found in Christ. And the you know the Bible we we certainly don't want people. If you're a Christian and you've been forgiven by God, you don't want to live with a sense of condemnation. That's right. contrary to Romans eight one. Romans eight one calls us to believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. So that's that's a a statement that affirms. It's encouraging. It builds us up. But the source of the affirmation and the foundation of the affirmation is outside of self, and it's grounded in the righteousness and sacrificial work of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's very different than this staring at your own belly button, finding your own glory, your own self-worth within. And these subtle subtle lies are are everywhere, by the way. And I would say women who tend— tend, I think, to be a a bit more emotional and introspective than men, can be especially vulnerable to these lies. Mm -hmm. 
if you have a self-esteem issue and someone says, look, the, the way to overcome your self-esteem issue is just love yourself more, love yourself more. Uh, this is this is a false this is a false gospel, uh, and it will leave people continuously hopeless. Mm-hmm. I, I must also say that when we find our truest value and worth in Christ, that drives our worship. Worship is an incredible act of humility if it's properly demonstrated. Perhaps one of the greatest acts of sacrilege is for a preacher who's leading worship, a musician who's leading worship, to seek attention in the process when they're supposedly pointing people to God. That's pretty gross. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to see it in our own lives and address it quickly if it's there. Yeah. So we talk a lot about proper biblical views of authority structures in this podcast. Yeah. So how is pride, if at all, tied to an improper view of God's authority? Oftentimes when we think about pride, we we sort of perceive of it as simply an internal inflated view of yourself. And that is an aspect of pride. But pride is rooted ultimately in radical autonomy. Mm-hmm. To be prideful is to make oneself your your own ultimate fan, your own super fan. To make yourself your own manager instead of a steward of something that belongs to God. Now, as a steward under God, that's really important, under God, each of us does possess a degree of autonomy, meaning that we have certain freedoms and liberties. For example, um, a very tangible example would be we have certain freedoms and liberties as to what we're going to put in our mouths, right? what food we're going to eat, what we're going to drink. So there's a certain autonomy there. There's a certain autonomy in body stewardship and body care that we have, but it's all under God. It's not directly spelled out for us. It's spelled out in principle, but not necessarily in creed and code as to exactly what we should eat for breakfast, what we should eat for lunch, what, what we should eat for supper, how many laps we should run, mm-hmm. you know, how many reps we should uh, curl. Um there's there's a certain limited autonomy one could say that we we have but but in our society what people are aiming for is radical autonomy right radical autonomy like complete and utter autonomy and radical autonomists perceive of the human self as a self-governing entity the master of his or her, zay or zer, <laughs> own fate. See, I'm, I'm trying to keep up the times, the pronouns. Pride essentially is the belief in self-power, if you think about it. And this is why in the Bible, when God chastises kings and people in positions of power and nations for their pride, there's an inextricable link between falsified power and pride. For instance, in Leviticus 26, God warns Israel that he will break the pride of her power. Break the pride of her power if she disobeys. In other words, when we disobey God, when Israel disobeyed God, that the desire to 
usurp his power and authority, to take a power that is not dually assigned to us, and then to to push off the authority of Christ is an act of pride. So there's an inextricable link link between self-governance, radical self-governance, life out from under God's laws, mm-hmm. and pride. Uh, Hezekiah, we know in Second Chronicles, was made sick because he looked out at all of his achievements and he found pride in it. Instead of being humble, he was prideful. So God cast sickness upon yeah. him for a period of time until he was humbled. And then a verse I was looking at today, two verses actually, is are found in Psalm 10. Psalm 10, 3 to 4 reads, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Hmm. Now to say there is no God is the ultimate denigration of God's authority. And I doubt that very many Christians, well, by definition, you wouldn't be a Christian to say there is no God. You'd be an atheist. Practically, people can live like atheists and theoretically be theists, but to say there there is no God is the ultimate diminishment of God's authority mm-hmm. in in one's life, and this is tied to pride. So again, we often think of pride merely as a, an internal thought sin. You know, I'm thinking too highly of myself. But fundamentally, pride is to usurp God's authority. It's positioning yourself above God and above his authority over your life. Fundamentally, then, we could say it this way. Pride is competition against God. It's trying to beat God out. It's trying to one God up. It's competition against God. And then when it's applied to human relationships, there's there's an equivalent there. Pride, if I'm demonstrating pride toward you or you, you toward me, what we're essentially doing is we're trying to compete with one another for for power, right. for for attention, and so p- pride is is the attempt to be first when you're not. It's the attempt to think too highly of yourself. This is why when God judges the prideful, it often talks in Scripture about He makes them low, which is a spatial term, but it has a spiritual sense to it. To be under God, that's a spatial term. To be under God is to be humbled, to mm-hmm. acknowledge his supremacy, to acknowledge his lordship. So when we're called to humility, essentially, like, what's humility? Well, humility is essentially to put yourself in a lowly state mm-hmm. and to keep God on top, to keep God above, to acknowledge his supremacy. He's already there. Like, he's not intimidated by our pride. But to acknowledge that he is king of kings and lord of lords is is ultimate humility, and that's what fuels and drives our worship. Right. Perfect. Okay. So in in this culture, it's easy to justify pride Mm -hmm. or self-promotion because it seems like an easy way to get ahead. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. Humanly, we can look around and say, well, it's okay to have a certain measure of pride because that's how I'm going to get my promotion at work. I need to talk myself up. I need to present my resume uh, with all of its embellishments Mm -hmm. 
and with none of my negatives uh, in order to get the job. You know, one of the funniest interview questions is, uh, so tell me, what are some of your weaknesses? <laughs> it's like, well, my greatest weakness is I can't think of any weaknesses. I'm too hardworking. <laughs> I'm too hardworking. I care too much. Yeah. I spend too much time at the office. <laughs> really, my greatest weaknesses are also my greatest strengths. <laughs> yeah, it's, we have this we have this desire deep within us for for recognition and it's ultimately because we haven't found our value and worth in christ it's the the more a person boasts the more they're revealing that they haven't found their truest value and worth in in christ right now objectively speaking if you're applying for a job as an engineer yeah you could say i have an engineering degree i'm capable of mm -hmm. accomplishing task a b c that's fine there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that there's certain things that you have accomplished in life. I mean, compared to others, some people are very, very highly accomplished individuals, and mm -hmm. we recognize that. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to earn a gold medal at the Olympic high jump without being a really, really good high jumper, without being better than 10 million other people that have participated in the same sport. Right. But that doesn't necessarily need to translate into a soaring ego, you know, to be able to clear the pole. So there's nothing wrong with being good at something, but the question is who gets the credit? This is a question we always have to ask. I'm, I may be good at A, B, or C, but who gets the credit? You may recall the name Eric Liddell. Um, apparently your mother named uh, you after him. <laughs> no. <laughs> but Eric Liddell was... Um, participated as an Olympic runner in the 1920s, and there was a film made about him, Chariots of Fire. And Eric Liddell um, later became a missionary, by the way. But this is a famous quote from him. So he was acknowledged as being really fast. Yeah. And he said this, quote, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure, end quote. Wow. So maybe God has made you a great writer, Maybe God has made you a great physician. Maybe God has made you a great tradesman. Mm -hmm. Maybe God has made you a great counselor. Maybe God has made you a great administrator. Nothing wrong with that. In the scriptures, we see people that were great at certain things. David was, by all standards, a great military leader. Right. Samson was, by all standards, a very physically strong individual. Some people in scripture described as being very beautiful and others very wise. So God has designed each of us. We're not, we don't all look the same, act the same, possess all the same skills and gifts. But the question is who gets the glory for it? And when right. God receives the glory for the gifts that you have been given in your life, God is elevated. God is recognized in a way that, that, honors him. It's this whole mindset of you know the mission of God being the glory of God. Well, if the mission of God is ultimately his glory, then we need to give him glory in our lives. So you look at social media and we see a lot of other types of glory being given mm -hmm. to self. Kind of this, you get this vibe, hey, look at me. Look, I lost weight. Like, look at my before and after photo. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the next click, the next like, the next comment. 
I was fat and now I'm skinny. I have my before and after photo, mm. shirt off, bikini on, whatever it might be. This is not glorifying to God. This is self-glorification. Look at me, I'm feeling good. Now, the Bible says, with regard to compliments, let's think about this. In, in Proverbs 27.2, this is a good, um, a good verse for people to memorize. It says, let another man praise you, not your own lips. Right. They might say, okay, that sounds a little contradictory. So I get it. I was supposed to let someone else praise me, but should people be praising me if we all want to be about humility? Mm-hmm. Like, why don't we just never compliment anyone else? Yeah. Why don't we just... You do your work, Eric. I do my work. You know, God forbid we ever say, hey, good job, brother, because that might inflate the other person's ego. In fact, you've heard me rant on this in sermons. One of the most irritating things people can do, and I'm sure many will come up to me this week who've listened to the podcast and do this just to get under my skin, but you go up to someone and you say, don't let this go to your head, but that was a good, you know, whatever, sermon or whatever it might be. It's like, okay, so you've prefaced your compliment with an insult, <laughs> with an assumption of pride. <laughs> so we don't, we don't need to be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. If you're going to compliment someone and they, quote, unquote, let it go to their head, well, right. they're going to have to deal with that before God. But the Bible does say, let another man praise you, and we are called to encourage one another. Now, the question is, how can this be? Uh, well, there, there's, there's two different as with many words, there's at least two different semantic ranges to the word pride. So if I say, oh, I'm proud of my son for his accomplishment. I'm proud of you for you know, some great video editing that you did. Mm-hmm. It, it, what I'm saying there is I appreciate what you've done. I have a certain affection for you. I... I'm glad you're able to accomplish whatever it was that you accomplished. That's not the same as the kind of pride that is truly deadly right. in in our lives. In fact, C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin, the great sin. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we, we need to be aware of, I, I get it. We live in a culture, we're getting lots of input. We're not necessarily evaluating it all. If you're a younger person, it may seem perfectly normal to, to put before and after pictures on social media. Right. But I I believe that it's feeding something in you unhealthy, mm-hmm. and we just need to be careful about it. Nothing wrong with a nice portrait on your profile picture, picture your family, uh, a wedding, whatever it might be. I mean, I, I post pictures of people. I'm, I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of my kids, proud of my grandson. Um. But I don't want that to inflate my ego or for me to somehow rob God of power or authority by praising God for some accomplishment that someone in my family committed. But we have to be very careful about drawing attention to self. Mm -hmm. Growing up, um, my mom and dad were always very particular about that. I remember what my dad would always say to me is, if you're good at something, like, like people will know. You know, you don't need to tell other people how good you are at something because if you are truly good at something, they'll know. Sure. And then I love that quote. I never heard of that before, Eric Liddell. I love that quote um, when I run. I What was it again? I, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Yeah, I love that quote. Just doing everything you're doing as unto the Lord, you mm-hmm. know, and just completely giving him honor and glory for that and knowing that in your heart. I love that so much. Yeah, I think your dad has some wisdom there. I mean, 
if a person doesn't know you, so let's let's assume you're applying for a, a job and you're being interviewed by someone that's never seen you in action. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with saying, "Hey, you know, full disclosure, I have the following certifications. Right. This is my experience. I do think that this is the kind of job that I would excel at. I think I'd be an asset to the organization. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you want to position yourself so that you can give glory to God exactly through that new job. Yeah. There's a difference between that and someone who's on the job and is always going around comparing themselves with other people's accomplishments. Hey everybody, I'm the best engineer in the place or I'm the <laughs> I'm the I'm the I'm the quickest plumber in the company or whatever it might be. Again, that's gross. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of behavior we need to some people are more obvious about it and they just tend to get called out. Yeah. But people can develop a very subtle more hidden way of concealing their pride, but really that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of tell whenever they they sound, all all glory to God, but it's like, I don't know. (laughs) I know you don't actually mean that. Can you imagine that if someone posted a weight loss pitch, all glory to God, it's like, (laughs) I don't know. It's a little bit sacrilegious actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. It truly is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so June being Pride Month, can you comment on how the term is actually accurate, but but it's also distorted use of the term pride at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, first of all, I'm concerned it's going to be pride summer again. It seems oh, like yeah. it's gone beyond June, but mm-hmm. it is accurate in a certain sense in which the, the movement that's promoting this radical sexual autonomy and non-creational sexual expression, it is pride because it's a usurpation of God's authority. It's direct disobedience of God's command, which for some crazy reason has become hate speech in our country almost. Simply saying what has been true for all of human history and saying what God wrote in his word thousands of years ago and which God declared in creation even before it was written in the Bible is somehow hate speech. But with this Pride Month, the fundamental message the fundamental message or goal, I guess, of the pride movement is they want people to be able to have free, unfettered sexual access to anyone or anything that they want. They don't want any laws or rules. And it's it started off with, okay, well, we just want this, but we're never going to go to this step. And then once you give them the first step, they want the second, once the second, the third. Mm-hmm. This is why it's not... It's not beyond belief. It's not an exaggeration for people to continue to express concern about the trajectory of this movement towards pedophilia, for example. Right. It's like, well, no, it's never going to go there. Well, why wouldn't it? If your if your belief is that love is love, and some six year old says, "I genuinely love this sixty six year old," and they both verbalize it and committed themselves to a sexual relationship. Why is it so outlandish Mm -hmm. for people to acknowledge that that is where this will lead? I mean, who would have ever thought back, let's say, in the early 90s or late 80s when this um, movement really took hold that we'd be at a point in time where you're literally arguing in favor, and we're talking about mainstream politicians and even some clergy, arguing in favor of adult men dressing up as women and dancing in thongs in front of kindergarten students. Yeah. Why aren't they doing it in seniors' residences? 
because they want the children. They want mm-hmm. to indoctrinate the children. They want to propagandize the children. This is the directory. They want unfettered sexual access. And by the way, I'm just going to say this. The people that are most adamant in protecting, quote-unquote, LGBTQ rights uh, are also people that are unrestrained in their sexual appetites. And this is why I am very suspicious of, like, I wouldn't trust with my children, if I had young children, I wouldn't trust with my children for them to be in the presence of a politician, a political leader, or a clergyman, clergy person that stood for this stuff because deep in the human heart, there's going to be people that are more overt in their expression of sexual perversion and others that are more cloaked about it. But if you're all, hey, two thumbs up, this is great, I'm just going to say you're a pervert too. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of person that I, I, I wouldn't trust. So not only would I not trust that, have taken God, this is the thing too, God's covenantal sign not to wipe out the world with a, global catastrophe or a flood, the rainbow, to take that sign and to apply it to sexual diversity is flat out blasphemy. Mm -hmm. It's an offense to biblical Christianity. To to usurp, to take our symbol, the bow, God's promise, and to apply it to to this new religion. And it is a religion, by the way. It has an ultimate authority. It has a moral code. It's all contrary to God's laws. It has a high priest. It has a technocracy. It has the, the whole nine yards. It, you, they're even. It's even even as charitable status. Go yeah. on the CRA website, the Canadian Revenue Agency website, to the Charities Directorate. There's all kinds of charitable organizations that support this agenda. So, if you think about the 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 distortion of the underlying cause, again, when you trace it all back. The only way you can support this quote-unquote movement is by denying biblical authority. There's a pastor of a local Mennonite church here in our own city that used to be on staff at our church years ago that just came out in favor of this agenda. We don't want to exclude anyone from uh, leadership, worship in our church who's part of the the long acronym. He's now outed himself as a heretic. He's a false teacher. He's a false brother. And it's sad to say that he needs to repent because he's leading people astray in the name of a distorted view of love. But he's not alone. Michael Corrin, who arguably, I think years ago, was probably somewhat orthodox. I mean, he seems to change denominations quicker than most people change their underwear. But Michael Corrin just tweeted out today. Listen to this tweet. He's the Reverend Michael Corrin. He's up in the Toronto... Corn. He's up in the Toronto area, often does uh, columns for big Toronto newspapers. Yep. He says, quote, Adam in Hebrew is gender-free. Well, first of all, no, it's not. It's masculine. Adam in Hebrew is gender-free and means creature rather than man. So I'm thinking, okay, not only is there, is there a, a flaw there in his understanding of that word, it's it's in the masculine. But yeah. let's say it was in, for whatever reason, the the neuter. And you're like, okay, well, is he talking about a specific human male or is it is it a some sort of a genderless being he's talking about here or is it a blanket term for all of humanity composed of male and female? So you would look, normally look at the surroundings and you look at the surrounding material 
And I responded to it with, you know, with reminding him that right in the context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it says male and female, God created them. It then calls Adam, who he's claiming is genderless, a husband. It then talks in Genesis 3 about Eve, his wife, his other, as being um, as as being put in a place where she's going to experience pain and childbearing. Mm-hmm. Like the whole context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 makes this, makes it very clear there's a human adult male and a human adult female, that's Adam and Eve. So to somehow support, to buttress the LGBTQ agenda because in his false exegesis, um, Adam is is not male. It's a flat out lie, right? But you know what? You, you know when I when I challenge him on it, his best response to me is, "Well, you don't understand Hebrew exegesis." <laughs> so, but people like this shouldn't surprise us because the local pastor that um, has come out in favor of the LGBTQ, the Corins, uh, they long ago abandoned biblical authority. Mm-hmm. They they abandon biblical authority. They're more concerned about cultural approval, cultural approval, than they are about upholding the authority of God. Oh, that's old fashioned. We're we're these new we're the new enlightened clergy that influenced by psychology, Freudianism, politics, the fake social justice movement, wokeism. We now have these new revelations. Mm-hmm. Adam is no longer a man. A practicing sodomite can participate in a Lord's Supper. Um, there's been false teachers since the beginning of time, right? And these men, if they even identify as such, <laughs> are among them now, and shame on them. Mm-hmm. So pride is pride is fundamentally uh, uh, a denial of the ultimate authority of God. Now, here's here's what's interesting. When pride is expressed in human relationships, it's the one sin that you participate in alone. You can find someone to go steal with you. You can find someone to gossip about another person with. You can find someone to fornicate with or to get drunk with you. But pride is a sin that when it's actually seen in someone's life, no one else condones. It's like we're always ick, you know, grossed out by it when we see it in someone's life. And when pride expresses, so when when pride expresses itself, let's say between me and God. So when a guy like Corin or others are denying the authority of God, they often have a, a bunch of cheerleaders around them. But when pride manifests itself in relationships between one person and another, between a husband and wife or two friends, it actually erodes the relationship. It makes the the building of a, a meaningful relationship uh, impossible. And so in order to make this sin acceptable, because it's not innately acceptable, it erodes human relationships, what the pride movement does is they redefine it. So remember earlier I said, if I say, okay, I'm proud of my son right. for what he's done, I, that's a kind of a different kind of pride, and it's mm-hmm. basically me saying, oh, I, I affirm you, I have a warm-heartedness towards you, whatever. Yeah. So they they take pride directed toward God, the diminishment of God's authority, and they try to make it that other kind of pride. Well, it's just affirming another person's value. 
Can't you affirm the value right. of a homosexual? Mm-hmm. Like, do you hate them? Do you want them dead? So they they create uh, a false conflict. The conflict being, well, you hate the person. We're right. saying, no, no, no. We hate the sin because the sin is is a diminishment of the authority of Creator God over your life. Mm-hmm. So we don't apologize for that. We don't apologize for that. And you'll have people say, well, someone hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. So they hurt my feelings because they they didn't affirm, you know, let's say a girl is in a sexual relationship with another girl. They didn't affirm it, so they hurt my feelings. And they go for counseling to Reverend so-and-so yeah. who no longer affirms the authority of God. And Reverend so-and-so says, oh, so sad. I, I can't believe those mean Christians hurt you in that way. I need to apologize to you. Mm-hmm. I, I need to... We're gonna do. We're gonna do a church statement. We're gonna publicly acknowledge the transgressions and the hate and the lack of grace that we have committed as a church against this individual. It's like no, the person's under conviction, right? And you're trying to dismiss the Holy Spirit from their life and the conviction that is that is in them. So we've we've taken this word pride and we've turned it into a virtue. When historically we understood it was one of the seven deadly sins. Exactly. Again, what C.S. Lewis called the great sin. Mm-hmm. But this is the grand lie. This The same sin that makes the devil the devil, pride. Right. Alienated Adam and Eve and all of their offspring from God. When you eat of it, your eyes will be open, the serpent convinced him, and you will be like God. Ah, oh, mm-hmm. I can usurp his authority. This is the fundamental sin. I can usurp his authority. So the same sin that made the devil the devil, if if I could borrow Lewis's language, is the sin that alienated us from God. When we denounced his authority and we tried to put ourselves above him in the garden. Now, since pride, think about this from a soteriological perspective, since pride can only be repented of through humility, and because of sin's devastating effect upon humanity, we're no longer naturally humble. Right. Therefore, the very pride that caused us to sin against God does not enable us to repent and find life in God. So we're sort of doubly damned in that regard. We have the the original sin and then we have our inability to in and of ourselves repent of it without God's intervening grace. So what does God do? The truest authority, who is God, he did what we should do toward him. He humbled himself and took on human flesh. Mm-hmm. He humbled himself to save us from our pride and our lack of humility in order that we might be redeemed and have a relationship with him, which is the beauty and glory of the gospel, that everything we didn't do, he did for us. And when we tried to usurp his authority and lost our humility and therefore condemned ourselves to perpetual alienation from God, the God who, if I could use this language, um, has plenty of reason to be prideful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he is the ultimate and final authority. Mm-hmm. Humbled himself and took on the nature of a servant. 
not only to die in our place on our behalf, but also to model for us how we should be living our lives, right. which is in humility under his authority and lordship. So I guess we, we know there's kind of different types of pride. We've talked about the pride that we have for people in our lives that we appreciate and that we affirm, but we know that historically pride has been looked at as us putting ourselves over top of God. So how do we overcome that type of pride? And what is the opposite of that? What is the opposite of that mm -hmm. type of pride? Mm -hmm. Well, as with, with any sin, it needs to be acknowledged for what it is. So we need to see it, acknowledge it, identify it. Mm -hmm. I am a prideful man. I have usurped his authority. I am a prideful woman. I have usurped his authority. I have sought attention and glory that belongs to God. I have sought to take credit for my accomplishments that I should have given credit to God for. Whatever that expression is, name it. You have to name the sin. And then we repent of it. We turn from it. And by the way, there's a, there's a little subtle kink in the road that we can fall into or veer off the road in our path toward humility okay. that actually involves pride. So let me, let me just say it this way. Let's suppose that I've been disobeying God habitually in substance abuse yep, or in my vocabulary or in sexual relationships, and I'm convicted of it and I realize I need, I need to make a change. So then I conclude, well, that what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of psych myself up and I'm going to rustle up from within my the inner recesses of my soul, self-discipline. I'm going to discipline this sin out of my life. I'm going to overcome it by my own strength. I'm going to, like the little train who who wasn't sure if he could get up the hill. Yeah. So he, he hooked up to the, the little engine. He hooked up to the train and he just kept saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And finally gets up the hill and we all cheer for the little train. Yeah. We weren't sure if he was going to succeed, but he just brought up some courage from deep within the recesses of his own little trainishness yeah. and he succeeded. That actually is pride. So when we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we're like, okay, I need to overcome pride by my own self-discipline. Well, that's now you're combating pride with pride. Yeah. So it's like, well, what do I do then? It sounds like I'm I'm hopeless. Well, the the word of God is very clear on this. Paul said my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Hmm. Now you got to think deeply about that. We, he goes on to say, boasting more gladly in his weakness, so the power of Christ may rest in him. When we are weak, we don't, and we realize we can't do it ourselves. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to give up and go kill myself or quit. No, we, we call upon the Lord. We, we ask the Lord to equip us and resource us with his power to do a supernatural work in our lives every day, actually, so that his power, the, the power of Christ, might actually flow through us and allow us to overcome sins of the flesh, sins of the mind. This is really important to hear because there's a self-help movement that's infected the many Christian churches and distorted the gospel. And the self-help movement 
essentially claims you can overcome your deficits or your obstacles, or the Christianized version of that would be sin, by thinking more highly of yourself, by thinking grand thoughts of yourself. Well, since pride is behind all sin, pride can't resolve it. So again, what we need to do is to develop an attitude of humility. So the opposite of pride is humility. Right which is a proper assessment of yourself. Am I made in the image of God? Yes, objectively I'm made in the image of God. Have I been redeemed by the precious blood of a lamb? Yes, I have been redeemed by the precious blood of a lamb. Is it true that there's now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Yes, that's true. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I don't take credit for any of that. My design as an image bearer, my position in Christ, the forgiveness of sins that I've experienced, my spiritual gifts, my resources, my intellect, my lack of intellect, my verbal skills, my lack of verbal skills, my kinesthetic skills, my lack of kinesthetic skills. I don't take credit for it, and I don't need to be ashamed of those things either. Those, my strengths have been given to me by God, and it's through my weaknesses, through my deficits, Mm -hmm. that Christ's power can be made strong. How cool is it to see in the scriptures so many examples of this? Moses, who could hardly put two words together, became a great leader. Was he perfect? No, but he became a great leader. Daniel, who was thrown into the technocracy of Babylon in incredibly difficult times, incredibly like impossible political circumstances, still stood for God with no support. Joseph um, dismissed. Pharaoh's wife's request to go to bed with him because he he didn't have any he didn't have a youth pastor breathing down his neck. He didn't have an accountability partner, yeah. a men's discipleship group, but he believed and trusted in God, and God gave him the strength and power to overcome, and he became a great man through it. Not these are not perfect people, but they allowed the power of Christ to dwell through them. I was reading a, a little bit about Paul recently for my series on Acts, and I thought you know you hear a lot of speculation about what Paul might have looked like. And I did a little research, and there's actually several... Now, we're not going to die for this. It's not authoritative writ. It's not Holy Scripture. But there's several instances outside of the Bible where Paul is described, and he's described as being really short, which for most men is not a compliment. Yeah. Like under five foot tall. Um. Not particularly good looking, having lost most of his hair, having a hooked nose, probably with some sort of a bow legs or a limp. So the point is, is I'm not making fun of anyone who has those characteristics. I myself, I'm rather bald. <laughs> <laughs> but the the thing of it is, is most people aren't going to look to baldness or shortness or bow-leggedness or hook-nosedness and say, that's what we're all going for. Yeah, like Those are considered on the not-so-great side of physical attractiveness. But he became, by God's grace, God arrested him when he was going to execute, preside over the execution of his own people. By God's grace, he became a truly great man for God. And in spite of in spite of those particular deficits, he was arguably one of the greatest apostles in history. Right. So this is 
this is a man who had to learn to walk in humility and to realize that even in my weakness and my powerlessness, God's God's power can really loom large. So there's a lesson in there for us. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of lessons we can apply to Christian ministry in our churches. We want to serve humbly. There's a lot of—we don't want to hide our light under a bushel. We don't want we don't want our churches and our ministries to be like the best kept secret in town. Yeah, we don't want people to make the mistake of, you know, shying away from the crowds because you know they don't want to be in the spotlight. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to have a church if you don't first meet the crowds. Exactly. Jesus mixed with the crowds, and out of that extracted his disciples, and the disciples preached to the crowds, and out of that built churches. A lot of pastors make the mistake of just spending all their time in the church, and they have no connection to the proverbial crowds, right? So we, we want to be public, mm-hmm. if you could say it that way, in your ministry. Missionary-minded even would be a better way of putting it. But not for the purpose of self. So we should all be be willing to hold on to our stewardship with cupped hands, not a closed fist. This applies to marriage. Man, you're not going to find uh, too many rocky marriages where both people are truly humble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to find too many broken business relationships where both client and owner are humble in their treatment of one another. So this is a virtue that we need to aspire to, especially in a world that is so haughty and prideful before God. So see it in your life, choose humility. And then the beautiful thing is that humility fuels your worship. If you want to really rev up your worship life, you have to have humility Mm -hmm. because innate to worship is ascribing worth to someone other than yourself. In pride, you ascribe worth to self. In humility, you ascribe worth to God. Right. Awesome. Well, that's a good word. Thank you, Aaron, for for all that. Thank you to each one of our listeners today for taking the time to think through these important matters with us. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider helping us reach more listeners. You can do that by sharing this episode and dropping a rating on the podcast. Just remember, Leadership Now is available on demand from the Fight, Laugh, Feast app. It's on Aaron's blog, pursuitofglory.org, and all your favorite podcast apps like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and, and all the rest. So we hope you tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.